Welcome, future doctors, to another episode of the Future Minority Doctor Podcast with Dr. Sulma and Marina, where we bring you conversations to empower and inspire you to contribute to your community and the world by becoming a doctor. Welcome, future minority doctors. Thanks for joining us for another episode. Today, we have a special guest, Dr. Allison Fernandez. She is a pediatric anesthesiologist and pain physician at Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital, which is in St. Petersburg, Florida. Welcome, Dr. Fernandez. Thanks for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here today. All right. So for some of our listeners who maybe are not so familiar with all of the different specialties in medicine, can you first of all explain to us what is an anesthesiologist? So an anesthesiologist is a physician who uh, assists the patient through their surgery. And we evaluate them before they go to surgery. And then when we take them to the operating room, we put monitors on and we give them medicine so that they go to sleep. And we give them medicine to help with pain control. And then once their surgery is done, we wake them up and take them to recovery area. And we make sure that their pain is well controlled and that they're not having nausea, vomiting, and that they feel like they're back to their baseline. So they could either go home or they get admitted to the hospital, depending on the type of surgery they've had. Gotcha. And how long have you been an anesthesiologist now? I've been an anesthesiologist for nine years now. Wonderful. Have you practiced in Florida all of that time? Uh, I initially started practicing um, in Baltimore at Johns Hopkins Hospital at the Bloomberg Children's Center. And then my husband had a job transfer and we ended up moving to Florida. And so then I found employment at Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital. Wonderful. I'm curious, what is it... What would you say is the thing that you love most about your job? What I love most about being a pediatric anesthesiologist is taking care of all children. Usually the children are coming for a surgical procedure that they either absolutely need to survive or helps improve their quality of life. And it gives me great happiness to help them through the surgical procedure and make sure that they're doing well, that they're safe, and that they're getting pain medicine to help them reduce the amount of pain they may have and get them through the whole surgical procedure. Now, I also practice pain management where I round on the floor. So I'll see post-surgical patients for pain. And I also see patients who have chronic pain as well. It's a very small group of patients that have chronic pain, but the ones that do suffer a lot because it takes a long time for them to get diagnosed. So it's a tough being a chronic pain physician because there's so many dynamics involved in the care of those patients, and it involves a lot of medical specialties as well to help manage their pain and get a real final diagnosis. But it is fulfilling to be able to give those children a way to help improve their, again, quality of life and their ability to function in society. 
Can you give us a specific example of a childhood condition that you help uh, manage the pain for? So we have patients who have chronic pain. They can have what's called complex regional pain syndrome. And sometimes they know the cause. It might be like an injury. Maybe they had an injury to their leg or their arm. But sometimes they don't know what caused them to have all of a sudden this pain. And they describe the pain as uh, like a burning pain. And then sometimes you could see physical signs of changes because a consequence of having the pain. And so we try to help the treatment for complex regional pain syndrome is physical therapy. But as you can imagine, it's really hard to participate in physical therapy when your limb hurts so much that sometimes you can't even put your shoe on or put anything on it. We kind of, as a pain physician, we help them try to, with medication and with psychological therapy, help them cope with their pain and give them medications to kind of help them participate in physical therapy. Or sometimes we'll do what are called regional nerve blocks. So we'll inject local anesthesia and it'll numb that limb and that way they can start participating in physical therapy. Though whenever we do a regional block, we usually do it for a short period of time. Like they'll usually have to get admitted to the hospital and stay for a few days and that kind of thing. So that's mostly if you get admitted to the hospital. But if you're going to stay from home, like not get admitted, then we try to use other medications. But most of the medications that we use are more medicines that kind of help with nerve pain. Gotcha. I'm sure many of our listeners are maybe wondering like what a typical day looks like for an anesthesiologist. Can you tell us a little bit about your typical day? Well, we're definitely early birds. We have to, most operating rooms start at 7.30 in the morning. So you have to be there a little before that so that you could set up your operating room and evaluate your patients. So most of us are there somewhere between 6.30 and 7.00. And then you go, you evaluate your patient and do your surgeries. Every day is a little different because you may be working with one type of surgeon one day and a different surgical specialty another day. So your room assignments change every day. Also your location. You could be working in the operating room, but you could also provide anesthesia in like radiology. So it changes every day, which is what I like about it. And the other thing is that The type of procedures you're doing changes every day. So that's also why it's so interesting. We work until the operating room is done (laughs) for the most part. Most operating rooms start closing down around 3, between 3 and 5 p.m. But then you have to be on call for emergency surgeries. And so um, there are days that I have to be on call, and so I could go home, but if I get called in, then I have to come in and help with that surgical procedure. Now, some people who might be listening, they have never been in an operating room before. Mm-hmm. Can you describe a little bit about what the anesthesiologist is doing during the surgery as opposed to the surgeon, like kind of from the beginning when you're knocking them out to throughout <laughs> the whole procedure until afterwards? Right. The operating room team, because it's a team, usually includes an anesthesiologist. Sometimes it includes a certified uh, nurse anesthetist, 
a surgeon, the surgical assistant, which could be a fellow or another physician. It just depends. You have a scrub tech. So a scrub tech is someone who passes the surgical instruments to the surgeon. And you have an operating room nurse. Once we bring the patient to the operating room, the operating room nurse will help the anesthesiologist put on the monitors, make sure every, the patient's set up on the monitors, which includes putting um, a pulse ox to look at the oxygen, EKG leads to look at the patient's heart rate and read the heart rate continuously, and a blood pressure cuff. And then the anesthesiologist, that's when we, what we call induction of anesthesia. So we're going to put the patient to sleep. In adults, most of the time they have a peripheral IV, so we'll give medicine through the peripheral IV to make them go to sleep. However, in children, most of the time they do not have an IV because it's very challenging to get an IV <laughs> in a baby uh, that's awake and moving and screaming. So usually when we put a child to sleep uh, or a baby, we have them breathe the anesthesia gas through the anesthesia machine. So they'll have a little mask with the medicine going through. So they'll have another a mask with the medicine going through, and the patient will breathe in the medicine, and then they'll go to sleep. Once the patient is asleep, we have to what's called secure their airway. So that depends on the type of surgery, but what that means is that we're going to put some kind of device in their larynx to help make sure that they're breathing. So either we'll put a breathing tube that goes down into their trachea is typically what people do. And we also make sure we have an IV. If the patient already has an IV, then that's fine. But if they, like a baby, that we had them breathe the anesthesia through a mask, once they're asleep, the first thing we do is get an IV because you need to be able to give medications through their IV. And then we'll put in the breathing tube and so that the endotracheal tube is a small tube, kind of looks like a straw, but think about it as a big straw. We put it in your trachea. Then that connects to the anesthesia machine, which gives you oxygen. It gives us another monitor called an end tidal CO2 monitor that makes us know that we're providing adequate what's called adequate ventilation, so that there's exchange of air and gas into your lungs. And that's how we know that you're breathing okay. Gotcha. And then from that point on, the surgeon takes over and they start doing their surgical procedure. And then this is where the anesthesia is important because the surgeons focus on doing what tasks they need to do. And we're focused on the patient's vital signs. So we want to make sure that their heart rate is within their normal range, their blood pressure is in normal range, that their oxygen level is, is high, 100%, right? <laughs> and making sure that the patient is not having any pain. And so this is the time where you may have to give pain medicines um, to help them not feel the pain from the surgeon. The other thing we look, we focus on as well is because some of the anesthesia medicines can cause people to have nausea and vomiting afterwards, we'll give other medications to help prevent the nausea and vomiting. And we give patients fluids uh, like lactate or ringers or plasmalite or normal saline so that we're um, making sure that the patient is hydrated during the surgical procedure. If the surgeon 
is doing a procedure that happens to have blood loss where you're losing a lot of blood, we come in and we'll check the patient's blood. We'll get a blood sample from the patient to check their hemoglobin level, to look at all the other electrolytes and oxygen levels. And we'll evaluate that and determine if we need to transfuse the patient with blood. So depending on the surgery, it would require a blood transfusion. And so that's another task, that, another thing that we closely monitor as well. Once the surgery is done, we shut off all the medicines and the patient wakes up and we take the breathing device out. Um, we take the patient to recovery and we're asking them about their pain. And so if we need to give more pain medicines, we can do that. Something else I'd like to add an anesthesiologist does, again, pain is a big part of our, our job. So sometimes, depending on the type of surgery, we can provide what are called peripheral nerve blocks. And that is we use an ultrasound machine to find the nerves. Usually it's for like either shoulder or some kind of arm surgery or leg surgery. Or if a, a woman is going to have a baby and they're about to deliver, you can put an epidural. We do these kind of injections. Sometimes we leave catheters. Sometimes it's just a one-time injection. And the medicine, we, what we leave is called um, a local anesthetic, which a lot of you are familiar with because if you go to the dentist, they do it too. They give you local anesthesia. And so then you're numb. You have that numb sensation in your jaw and your tongue sometimes. And so that's the type, same type of thing. We give local anesthesia around the nerve and wherever they give the medicine, that area is going to be numb. So you can give um, an injection and your whole arm is numb or your, your leg is numb. Or if they do an epidural, then like everything is numb. <laughs> gotcha. So I'm a little bit curious uh, going back a bit. So when... When I was in medical school, and of course you too, during your third year of medical school is when you rotate through all the core rotations. Mm -hmm. Now, unfortunately, anesthesia is not one of them or anesthesiology mm -hmm. is not one of them. So a lot of students never really get to experience that part of the operating room. How is it that you got interested in becoming an anesthesiologist? Uh, anesthesiology is not a required specialty to rotate through as a medical student. It's usually an elective specialty that you rotate through. I was made aware of anesthesia because my mom works as a housekeeper. And one of the people that she works for worked for at the time was a certified nurse anesthetist. And so when I was in high school, my mom had told her that I wanted to go to medical school, that I wanted to be a doctor. So she was like, she invited me to come to the hospital and see her. So I saw her twice. And so I sat with her in the operating room and she thought I was going to love the surgery. And I was like, no, actually, I like what you're doing. <laughs> and so then when I went to medical school, I kept an open mind and did all my rotations. But I also chose to use my elective rotation and rotate in anesthesia, which I did. And I rotated with, I went to medical school at SUNY Stony Brook. And at the time, Dr. Glass was the chairman. And I contacted him and I said, I really want to rotate in anesthesia. And he said, well, just come to the operating room. And so he took me and I spent a month with them, two weeks or a month. 
And I got to see all kinds of surgical procedures. I worked, got to shadow a lot of the physicians. And it was a great experience. I loved it. And there was no turning back. (laughs) Uh, Wonderful. Now, we were talking about this before recording, but unfortunately, anesthesiology is one of the fields within medicine that really, really suffers from a lack of uh, minority representation. Tell us a little bit about that and your thoughts about why that might be. Yeah, uh, anesthesia is definitely one of the fields that lacks a diverse workforce. The American Society of Anesthesiology recognizes that, and they're in the process of trying to figure out how we can help improve that. But I think one of the, to me, one of the things that would be helpful is to maybe have an anesthesia elective not be an elective and be required. Because I think a lot of people miss out because they don't rotate through anesthesia at all. Even if it was just a weak rotation, I think it would benefit people. It would expose people to see what anesthesia is and maybe increase the diversity in the workforce. I also think that people maybe get intimidated because it's the operating room. And that's not an environment that is necessarily easy either. There's a lot of people. It's a little intimidating, I think. So I think that's another reason why maybe people turn away from it right away. But I definitely think that having a required anesthesia rotation would be helpful. But I would encourage you to look if you're interested, even if you're not super sure that you would want to do anesthesia, but just so that you could see the operating room and what it's like to be in the operating room. I would encourage you to at least do your surgical rotation, keep your eyes open and look around and see all the different other jobs because you get a very narrow view. Because even when you do your surgery rotation, you don't see all the surgical subspecialties, and there are a lot of them that you may be interested in over just doing general surgery. Also, while you're on your surgery rotation, you can talk to the anesthesiologist, and I'm sure they'll be really happy and excited to talk to you. Uh Absolutely. You mentioned that sometimes the operating room, rightly so, can be a little intimidating because sometimes, you know, surgeons have a reputation of being a little bit intimidating, and there are so many people, there's a lot going on, there's a lot of complex equipment, there's a lot of really important stuff to be monitoring for the patient. How was the experience for you going through that training all the way from your electives in medical school to residency? Was that an easy adjustment for you or did it take some time for you to adjust to that environment? It does take some time to adjust, even for those of us who are eager to be an anesthesiologist. I mean, as you mentioned, it's, it's intimidating because there's a lot of people. The surgeries can be quite complex. The patients can be quite complex. The equipment, sometimes there's even, you know, not just the staff in the operating room, but then you'll have like reps who help with the surgeons in in addition to the OR staff. Like if they use special equipment, there's usually a rep from the company to, to help the surgeon if they need help. So it can be a lot of people in the room and you don't know like who to talk to, <laughs> who you're supposed to be, you know, really in contact with, especially in the beginning. So um, it was definitely when I first started as a first year anesthesia resident, that first week was so intimidating. It was super stressful. I will even tell you that 
I broke out in like a full body rash <laughs> from the stress, like just from this whole change and the stress of being in the operating room. But even though it was very stressful, I really do and did enjoy what I was doing. and was very excited about what I was going to train in. But it does is an adjustment period. I'm sure everyone goes through some kind of adjustment period, especially when you're first coming out into your um, residency training and start having some responsibility over patients. So definitely it was a little stressful and intimidating, but um, you have your anesthesiologist attendings who are there to help support you and encourage you. And they know that you're new and that you don't really know all the ins and outs. And so um, they're there to help and support you. Yeah. One thing I, I understand that anesthesiologists are very, very good at is placing airways. So I know that sometimes like the emergency room, if a patient comes in that needs a breathing tube placed and the emergency room doctors are having trouble placing one, sometimes anesthesiology is called. Have you had that happen? Yes, that happens. We're considered the airway experts. The American Society of Anesthesiology has set up a emergency airway logarithm that we've been using for years and years and years and years. And um, that's something that we follow. But we have a lot of experience with airway management because of the environment we work in, in the operating room, having to put in all these breathing tubes every day. Uh So yes, I have run into these situations. They can be quite stressful. We um, try to manage the situation by making it as control the situation as much as possible. So, you know, we first start with, are we able to ventilate the patient just with the mask ventilation? So just putting a mask over their face and providing oxygen. Are you able to exchange air that way? So that's how we first start. Then we um, try to put in a breathing device. So usually we'll start with putting an endotracheal tube, as I mentioned before, and we do direct laryngoscopy so that we could see where we're putting the, the breathing tube in. Sometimes you can see very well and it just doesn't want to slide in, maybe because the, the patient has what's called a stenotic airway. So the airway is smaller than what you would expect for many, many reasons. And so then you just change the size of your tube. But sometimes mm-hmm. you can't, even when you do the direct laryngoscopy, you can't see anything. You're like, oh my gosh. And so then we have special equipment to help us. We can use what are called video laryngoscopes. So now it looks just like a laryngoscope. It's a device that looks, it's an L shape with the light at the tip of the L. And that's a normal one. But then if we can't see, uh, we can use one that has a camera on it. And then you can do a laryngoscopy with what's called a video laryngoscopy. And so then you have the camera to kind of help you see what the airway is like. Or sometimes you can use what is called fiber optic scope. So it's a long, skinny camera, and it has a light at the end. And usually you'll put in an, a, your endotracheal tube, you thread it over that. And then you use this camera, you could put it down the person's mouth or through their nose to help guide you to see all the structures in the airway to see where you're going to put in that breathing tube. If you have a point where you can't ventilate the patient anymore, or you can ventilate, 
but you still can't find where to put the breathing tube in, so you still can't see where the trach is, you can put in what's called a laryngeal mask airway, LMA. And that's just, it's not considered a secure device because it's not through your trachea, but it just sits there and makes allows you to ventilate the patient. So at least the patient's getting oxygen continuously. Mm-hmm. If you run into the situation where you can't ventilate with the mask and you can't put in the breathing tube in, then you have to do what's called a tracheostomy. And you just, you find the membrane, the thyroid membrane, and poke a hole through there and put a little tube in there. It's very rare when that happens. I have to say, I've never had to even do one. So thankfully, Uh but that is uh, something that you can do if you need to. So we have a very long logarithm and a lot of devices to help us make sure we get the tube in the right place. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Good. I'm sure your patients are very grateful for that. (laughs) Um, I'm curious, one of the other sort of things that I thought about when considering the field of anesthesiology, although I didn't really seriously consider, but I was curious about it at one point. One of the feared complications of surgery or of the operating room in general is if a patient starts to go downhill and, you know, obviously sometimes their heart can stop. That's sort of the most feared complication. Anesthesiology is so important in managing that kind of situation. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Correct. So I kind of alluded a little bit to that before, but, you know, if your patient is having a surgery, We have to evaluate the patient to see what their medical conditions are. And based on their medical conditions, you'll tailor your anesthesia for that patient. So, you know, if some patients come in and they have not so great hearts or not so great lungs. So when you put them to have anesthesia, you have to consider, you know, all of these medical conditions that the patient already has. You know, their medical conditions can appear to be problematic during the surgery. And then you have to uh, treat them. So while someone's under anesthesia, they can have a heart attack. Um, And so you have to manage that. And you you give medications, you give fluids, and sometimes patients' hearts stop working altogether. And you have to do chest compressions and all that kind of stuff. So uh, and aggressive resuscitation. Uh, other times, a patient can come in because they have an injury that's causing them to bleed a lot. Or maybe during the surgery, the surgeon cut something that shouldn't have cut, and now you're having a lot of blood loss. And so that requires you to call for help and call you know, the blood bank, and sometimes you have to call for a massive transfusion. So then that means that they just keep sending you blood products until you tell them to stop. So there are some situations that become very stressful or sometimes a patient is has maybe lung issues already and then you're having surgery and you notice that maybe you're not exchanging uh, oxygen, uh, is not exchanging very well during the procedure. So you have to adjust for those things as well. There is a lot of situations that can happen and they can become stressful. During your training, you learn how to treat these things that come up. And also, even after your training, usually you have to call for help. You can't do it alone. And that's why we're considered an anesthesia team. 
And so you call your other colleagues to come in and help you try to figure out what's wrong, um, how, what's the best way to, to help the patient get through it. I definitely admire that about anesthesiologists that you, most of the time, everything is pretty calm and controlled, but once in a while you have those very high stress situations together with the operating room team, of course, but Yes. I think the benefit, though, of being in the operating room is that you have all of the resources at your disposal, right? I mean, you have those blood products, you have the patient already with an IV, you know, so you're able to really do as much as you can to help that patient. Correct. And a lot of times we kind of know why the patient's having the issue that they're having, whether it's because of their medical condition or because of something that happened during the surgery. So, We usually know the reason why things are happening. Uh There are times that you don't know why, but sometimes, most of the time, we kind of know why. Why Uh things are not going as well as you want them to. Right. But you're right. We have a lot of resources. Usually, there's a pharmacy right next door to the main operating room. So if we need any medication, we have access to it. The blood and the labs are usually nearby the operating room, too. Usually, we have like little satellite um, areas for Mm -hmm. those. And so, again, if you need to send labs every two minutes or every minute, we could do that. Uh-huh. And if you need the blood bank, you know, send me blood and they send it. Uh, so everyone makes sure that the patient in the operating room is the main priority, especially if things are not going well. Gotcha. Well, let's backtrack quite a bit, actually. And <laughs> um, you mentioned just briefly that your mom was a housekeeper and, you know, this connection with someone that was an anesthesiologist, and that's wonderful. But tell us a little bit about growing up. Where did you grow up? What was your family life mm-hmm. like, your um, cultural background? And then what motivated you to become a doctor in the first place? So I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. I grew up in a neighborhood with a lot of immigrants, all because they want to come here for a better life. And my parents um, are were similar situation. My mom is from Colombia. My dad is from Spain. They both came to the United States looking for better opportunities. And they met in New York and they had their family here. Both of my parents work really hard. My parents really didn't have much of an education. Uh, they both didn't go to high school. So they worked, you know, in as blue collar workers and very hard workers, challenging jobs. But we had a very loving and stable home life. My parents, although they could never get an education, really enforced education or really promoted education. And it was a real priority for them, for myself and my sister to become educated. And so they really encourage us to go to school. They encourage us to get good grades. And that's what we did. And my sister and I both did really well in school. And I went to college and that was an adjustment. And that was a big adjustment for like the whole family because I was the first one to go to college. I was the first one to go to college away from home. I went to school at Cornell University, and that was like six hours away, and my parents uh-huh. didn't really drive, <laughs> so no, no, that was an issue. For, like, I didn't really get to see them when I was in school. I would only, if I came home on the Greyhound bus or if a friend drove me home during breaks. Going to Cornell was the best experience of my life. I met a lot of great friends that I are near and dear to me. 
and I still keep in touch with them. It was a great experience, but it was very tough. Initially, adjusting to college life was really tough, especially for me. I had never lived away from my family. I had a pretty strict household, so I was not one of those people who went out on nights and friends and stuff like that. I was home all the time, so that was a big adjustment. And then the academic was a big adjustment as well. It was, you know, it's pretty rigorous. And it, uh-huh. and so it was really hard to keep up. Uh, another challenge, I guess, that probably a lot of people have in common as well is most people who go to college, their parents went to college. And so they get a lot of guidance. But I didn't have that. And that was really challenging. Probably the first two years, it was like, Looking back now, I'm like, I don't know why I took the classes the way I did. Like, uh-huh. <laughs> like that was a setup for failure. <laughs> so that kind of thing, you live and learn and you do what you can. And so I did what I could and I graduated Cornell. It was great. I had a great experience. When I finished Cornell, I decided I wanted to take a break. I wasn't even sure if I wanted to go to medical school. <laughs> anymore. Uh-huh. I had initially wanted to go to medicine because when I was a child, my mom's mom came to live in the United States and she had a lot of medical problems. So I ended up taking her to a lot of medical appointments and being the translator, of course. So it was like seeing how the physicians cared for the patient and also sometimes experiencing like the language barriers that people face you know, when they interact with the healthcare system in the United States and how challenging that can be were things that really motivated me to go to medicine because I felt like I could make a huge difference in that area because, A, if I could become a doctor that, B, speaks Spanish, <laughs> that is, you know, super helpful because I can help a whole community of people that find this navigation of the medical system so challenging. So that was really one of the reasons why I wanted to go into medicine. But when I finished college, I was like not even sure if I wanted to do that because of all the tough classes and the stress and just getting stressed out of even taking the MCAT. I'm like, I don't even know if I want to do that to myself. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I actually took off and I um, graduated and then I went to work and I worked in a research lab. While I was at Cornell, I had the opportunity to work in a lab with Dr. Eloy Rodriguez. And he was a plant biologist and he studied uh, medicinal plants. So he was doing a lot of research on like finding the chemical compounds of plants that indigenous people used to treat themselves for medical ailments. And so he would go and find these plants from the Amazon or from Africa, bring them back to Cornell. And then we would be in the lab trying to find what was the chemical in this plant that caused this thing that made these people use it. Uh Uh-huh. So it was really fascinating. Actually, made me consider maybe I should do research instead and be a PhD, mm-hmm. so, which is why I ended up doing a research job after I finished Cornell. And I did that for almost two years. And while I was there, I was like, okay, yeah, I don't want to do this. I'd rather work with <laughs> patients. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I found myself in this situation that my grades were okay, but probably not the best for getting into medical school because, you know, every medical school wants a Uh, (laughs) Uh, 4.0. That's the perception anyway. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So and that was my perception, too. And 
I mean, I didn't have the worst GPA, but I have to, I had maybe like a 3.3 or something like that. Uh-huh. So it kind of shied me away from applying. And so I decided, you know, I should probably just do a post-bac program. And I actually did a post-bac program at Boston University. And it was a great program. It's two years. You do your first year is pretty much the first year of medical school. You do the histology course, biochem, anatomy. You don't do anatomy lab. That was the only class we did not take was the actual cadaver lab. But everything else was the same. We took all the same classes the first year. And then the second year, you had to do either a research paper, so help someone write with their research project and and come up with a posted presentation and all that stuff. Or you had to write like a 50-page thesis. I helped an OBGYN physician with their research, and that's how I finished my project, uh, which was great because it actually introduced me to clinical research, which I found interesting too. So while I was doing my research... I started getting nervous because I'm like, oh my gosh, how am I going to pay back all these medical, all these loans, student loans? And if I don't get into medical school, I'm really never going to be able to pay any of this off. So while I was already thinking of plan B, if I didn't get into medical school. So Boston University had a special program. If you were already in my, the postback program that I was in, you can take your GMAT and if you got a certain score, they would accept you into their MBA program and you can get an MBA in healthcare management. So I did that because I was very nervous that I wasn't going to get into medical school because I was considered a non-traditional student. And so I was in an MBA program while I was applying to medical school. Interesting. Yeah, I loved the MBA program. It was such a great program. You learn a lot. You know, you never get exposed to business, you know, when you're doing all your college years. I mean, unless you, most of us don't major in business. So that's why we don't get exposed to it. But it was really fascinating. Mm -hmm. I loved all the classes. You learned about accounting, you learned marketing, uh, negotiations. It was great. You learned how to present, which was something you never did either. Uh, How to use PowerPoint. And so it was, it was a great experience. I really enjoyed it. But uh, what can I say? I finished my MBA program. And at the same time I finished, I found that I got into medical school and I was going to go to Stony Brook in New York. So that's where I went. Wonderful. <laughs> that's yeah, that's such a wonderful moment for everyone who's trying to be it a doctor was. is that that acceptance wherever it is. It's so exciting. Yeah, I have to say that I only got accepted to one school, which was SUNY Stony Brook. And it was my state school. So I highly encourage people who are applying to medical school to apply to all of your state schools because you're most likely to get into your state school. Uh And the other thing is when you're majoring in college, don't feel like you have to major in biology because if you don't like biology, don't do biology. The only thing you have to do are the pre-med required classes, but you can major in anything you want. And I would encourage you to major in something you like or something that you feel is going to give you your plan B if you decide not to go to medical school or if you decide you need to work and then go back to medical school. So I would suggest you either get a degree that's going to be helpful for you to find the job, like engineering or I don't know, anything. But don't pick biology just because you think that's the major I'm supposed to be. Right. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Yeah. So, wow, you have so many degrees under you. <laughs> you yeah, have yeah. The, the MBA and the MD. 
And plus just all the the post-bac program. It's a joke in my family. They're waiting for me to go to law school. (laughs) (laughs) Gotcha. Now, I imagine you did have to take out quite a few loans in order to do the post-bac program, the MBA medical school. Luckily, as an anesthesiologist, one of the things I tell people is to look at kind of the salary of the specialty you want to go in just so you can plan ahead. doesn't mean Mm -hmm. that you should decide based on the number, but just so you can kind of plan ahead. And luckily, anesthesiologists are pretty well compensated. Is that right? Yes, we definitely tend to be on the higher end of the physician's compensation. Yes, we definitely do. So was it pretty, has it been really reasonable for you to pay off the debt from medical school and your education? Yes. So I've been, I managed to pay off my debt. I'm a firm believer in um, paying off my debt as soon as possible. Uh And I think that a lot of people in medicine, physicians especially, don't ever look at your finances. And that's a big mistake. I think you really need to take the time and learn about a little bit about finances. It doesn't take much. There's a really good book called White Coat Investor. It's a really, really good book. Uh, There's also lots of blogs online that you can find to help you um, try to figure out finances or even like other books on finance, like Path to Wealth or something like that. And they really help you kind of put things in perspective. But just as anything else, you have to plan your finances, just like you planned how you're going to get into medical school, just like you plan of like, how you're going to find an apartment, you have to do the same thing for your finances, plan how am I going to pay my loans and my debt? And how am I going to save money to buy my home? Something I, I tell all residents is to when you finish your residency and you start making a real salary (laughs) compared to the amount of money you made during your residency and all the training um, is to only um, increase your spending by 50% of your previous year. So don't go up too much from your last paycheck. (laughs) Uh That's very good advice because sometimes you know, doctors that are finally getting that full paycheck, it's so easy to, oh, I'm going to buy a house and a new car and all these things. And all of a sudden, you're living at the edge of your means. Mm-hmm. And that really limits your ability to pay off your your loans as quickly as as you'd like. Correct. And the other thing is that when you first start making your salary, get into the habit of maximizing your retirement accounts mm-hmm. all the time. Don't make an excuse for not doing that. And also set money aside to pay yourself. Mm -hmm. So set money aside for your retirement and then set another 5 or 10% for yourself that goes into a savings account. And then you can start using that money to pay all your debts and whatever, you know, fun things you want to do. But first do those two things because it'll pay you in the future exponentially. Totally agree with that. Well, Dr. Fernandez, um, thank you so much. You've shared so much wisdom about your career, what it's like, what your training was like, what you went through to get where you are today, and just shared some wonderful things for all of our listeners. I hope that some of them, I'm sure some of them will find it very inspiring, and maybe some of them will be moved to explore anesthesiology as a potential field of interest in medical school. Thank you so much for your time. 
Thank you for having me. It's great talking to you. I love doing this kind of stuff. Excellent. All right. And to all our listeners, thanks so much for listening. We hope you keep listening and keep learning and keep being inspired. Until next time.